Well, good morning again. I'm thankful that you are here this morning. I'm excited to jump into our sermon together. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7 in just a minute if you want to be turning there and finding that. Uh, before we do that, I know you have just sat down. I didn't, Chris and I did not think about this before, but I want this morning uh, to point out and to re- recognize uh, our sister Lori Ford, who's sitting right here beside Barbara Castle. You want to just raise your hand and let us know, Lori, that you're here. Uh, Lori has uh, been visiting with us for a while and wants to uh, be a part of this church family. And so I'm going to pray for our time in God's Word. I'm going to mention Lori. If you would stand with me, if some of you are near Lori and want to just surround her and encourage her, that would be great. And then you can have a seat and you can sit for about 25 minutes after that. So uh, let's pray this morning as we begin our time together in God's Word. Father, we're thankful for uh, the body of Christ. We're thankful that uh, we have the privilege of gathering this morning uh, to be reminded um, of our place around your table. And uh, this morning we ask that you'll bless uh, our sister Lori. We're thankful that she uh, wants to be a part of this church family, and we ask that you'll you'll encourage her uh, through her relationship with this body, Father, that you'll use her to... Uh, to work in your kingdom in ways that she knows now, in ways that she doesn't. We pray that uh, you'll uh, use her life to encourage and bless each of us, Father. We're thankful that she wants to to join us on the journey of faith and in life with you. Uh, This morning, God, as we uh, surround her, we pray that that, uh, she'll know that our hands upon her uh, are representative of our desire to care for and to walk with her. In life, We ask, Father, this morning now as we open your word together, that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear all that you want us to see and hear so that we might live in the way you want us to live. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you can have a seat. Thank you, guys. So we are in a week four of a summer sermon series that we are calling Half Truths. And we're calling it Half Truths because in this series... Uh, we're looking at all sorts of phrases that people use, statements that get used in, in conversation all the time uh, in our culture, and some by, many, many times get used by people who follow Jesus and, and oftentimes get used by people who do not have any interest in Jesus and follow Jesus in any way. They're, they're spoken as though they are true, and they might even contain a hint of truth, but in most cases they aren't in the Bible anywhere. The statement we're going to look at today is used often, but I would actually suggest that it is often misused, even though it is used often. And the statement is this, do not judge, do not judge. And you can, if you imagine in your mind, you can hear someone using this statement, it probably sounds more like, you can't judge me, or why are you judging me, right? Like, it may be asked in that Kind of way, and the tricky thing about this particular statement is that, like last week's statement, when we looked at the the phrase "God has a plan for your life," which comes from Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, uh, and, and we we talked last week about how it's kind of been misunderstood, even though there's a scripture to support that. This this phrase "Do not judge" is similar to that one in that there's also a Bible verse that people can use to support their view that you can't judge them. And that verse is found in Matthew chapter 7. It's Jesus' words, actually, Jesus' statement in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. This is what Jesus says. He says, do not judge or you too will be judged. Do not judge or you too will be judged. Now, 
this is the New International Version of the Bible. And if you ever have heard anybody say, do not judge, there's likely, they may not know anything about the Bible, but it is likely that, that you heard it in the King James Version, right? Judge not, lest ye be judged, right? That's typically how people say that phrase. People may not have any other knowledge of one single verse in the Bible, but they'll know this one. I heard a report, uh, read a report that I was, as I was preparing for this series, that if you would have asked, gone on a college campus 30 or 40 years ago and asked college students, what's the most well-known verse of the Bible, they would have, without question, everyone would have said John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But if you go onto a college campus today and you ask the same question, this verse from Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, would without fail be the verse that, that college students would say is the one that they know in the Bible. And I think that's interesting. right? And when they say it, people say this phrase, they usually say it with a bit of attitude, a bit of maybe even defensiveness. Judge not, lest ye be judged. And so what is Jesus saying and what does Jesus mean or what does Jesus not mean when he uses these words? So first of all, Jesus does not mean that you should never make any decisions about your life, that you should never make judgment calls. And Jesus did not mean that a person should never try to discern as they're living their life or determine between right and wrong. Because the reality of life is that, as all of us understand, right, is that decisions have to be made. There are moments when you have to discern what is right and what is wrong, what is best for your life. Sometimes when the word judge is used, it's an interesting word in Scripture. Sometimes when the word judge is used in Scripture, it means simply to separate or distinguish or evaluate or to come to a decision of some kind. And most of the time, when you or I make a judgment, this is what we're doing. We're we're trying to separate one thing from another thing, right? We're trying to distinguish and determine between a couple of options that we have available to us. We're trying to make some decision. We have a, we're at a crossroads in our life and for some reason. This is the kind of judgment that is a part of our everyday lives, and we can't live without it. We also know that it isn't what Jesus meant. He wasn't talking about this kind of judgment because Jesus, if, if it was, then Jesus didn't follow his own advice. Right? Just, just a few verses after what we read in Matthew 7, verse 1, Jesus says this in Matthew 7, 15, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. What is he saying? He's saying, as you live your life, right, pay attention to the people who are teaching you. Pay attention to the voices in your life. And I, and I don't even think this is just in church, by the way, right? People in our culture who are speaking as if they're right about whatever they're saying, Watch the fruit of their lives, and by their fruit, you will, know, you will know whether or not they are true or they are false prophets, whether they are accurate in what they say or false in what they say. He's saying you'll know this by watching their lives. Well, of course, you can't do any of that, right, without making a judgment, without trying to distinguish between what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is false, So Jesus did not mean that you should never have opinions or make hard decisions or evaluate things or discern things to be good or bad or right. 
or wrong. If Jesus is saying, if Jesus, but if Jesus isn't saying that you should never make judgments in this way, then the question still is there, what is Jesus exactly saying? And, and again, like I said, it's a tricky word. Like so many words that we have in English, oftentimes a Greek word has multiple meanings, and this word is an example of that. Jesus uses the word judge here in Matthew 7, not in the way that I've just defined, but in a more legal way, which is another way that it gets translated. The same word gets translated judge in English is also has, these, has multiple kind of ways of defining it. So when Jesus uses the word in Matthew 7, 1, this is what he means. He means do not pass judgment on, do not condemn someone. Jesus' is, Jesus's concern is that one person becomes the judge and the jury for another person. Where you, where you sentence this other person in your mind or in your heart, it doesn't even have to be out loud, or it could be in a more public way. Where you condemn someone, you shove one, someone aside. This doesn't mean, again, I want to emphasize, I can't emphasize enough, it doesn't mean that you are never to make moral discernment about things that are right and wrong, or that you are to never perceive things to be good or bad. And I think the difference in, in the way that we understand this word is important because it, it helps us understand what Jesus is actually saying about judging other people here in Matthew chapter 7. The word, this phrase, do not judge, shows up in Matthew 7, which is in the Sermon on the Mount. The context of this statement is in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' greatest teaching. And so I want to look at the context this morning, uh, beginning in Matthew 7, 1 and reading through 5. And I want to look more closely at what Jesus actually says. Here's what he says in context. He says, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the, the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Jesus essentially says, if I was going to put this in my own words, Jesus says you can either play the judgment game or you can play the grace game. And if you don't want to be judged, then don't judge other people. Extend to them the same gracious love that God has extended to you. You can play the judgment game, but if you insist on doing that, Jesus says, Know that the judgment you give is the judgment that you will get. And it's an interesting way to think about it, right? It's almost conditional. If there's, a, there's a, like, Jesus, the way he says it, why is it this way? Why does he say it this way? I think it's an important question to ask. And I think it's because Jesus knows that it is not our place to assume that we know about every single person what only God can know. We don't have all the information. We are not working with all the pieces to the puzzle about other people's lives and about other people's situations and about other people's stories. I, I would say we can't be trusted with that kind of power, quite honestly, as humans. We want to make judgments about others, but we want grace applied to us. This is the way that it works most of the time in the world that we live in. We want judgment to be placed about other people, but we want grace applied to us. But Jesus says it doesn't work this way in the kingdom of God. Just think about for a minute the world that we live in to make this practically land at home with us. The world that we, how does it play out in the world that we live in today? Our world, people are saying, I, don't, I guess none of us really know because we've only lived at this point in the history of the planet, but People say often, this phrase gets used a lot, that things are more divided 
at this point in history than at any other point in recent memory about everything, right? Politics, vaccines, the cause of inflation, immigration, abortion, laws and guns, racial tension, and so many other things. I'm just the tip of the iceberg there. And on every single issue, there has been a nearly constant stream of judgments from people that have set themselves up as the primary authority on the subject. And we do that too. We become the primary authority on whatever subject it is that's close to our heart. Can you believe they said that? How dare they? It sounds just like them to view that issue that way. Right? Often judging people we don't know, we've never met, we'll never talk to, maybe that just get portrayed through to us through TV, but many times making judgments about them and each other and people who fall on that side of this issue or this side of this issue. And if they're on my side of the issue, well, then I'm going to give them some grace. But if they're on the other side, you better believe judgment. The, ha- the judgment hammer is being laid down. And what Jesus' church wants us to hear is not that we have to agree about everything. That's, I don't think it's ever been the goal. But that when you disagree or when someone does something that you don't understand, evaluating someone's ideas or opinions is different from making a judgment about them as a person. Let me say that again. When you agree, disagree with someone, or someone does something that you don't understand, evaluating someone's ideas or opinions is different from making a judgment about them as a person. And I'll be honest with you, this, this phrase, do not judge, has been convicting for me. I've had some convicting realizations this week as I have spent time in God's Word preparing for today. Because I do this, and I'm willing to guess that you do too. We have to reserve the judgment of people to God. Ideas can be discussed, should be discussed. I don't think we discuss them enough. We don't know how to talk really anymore, quite honestly. But people should never be pushed aside as a result. Avoided, discarded, dismissed, however you want to think about it. This is the first part of what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 1 and 2, but he continues. And what he says next, I think, even pushes us even more in these next words in Matthew 7, beginning in verse 3. He says this. Next slide, please. He says, why? We got it. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Before I say anything else about these three verses, I think it's important to acknowledge the crowd that Jesus is talking to. The the people that he's talking to here in, in the original audience that would have originally heard these words They didn't have greater sins than other people. I actually think by the standards of that day, those the people that would have been in his original audience would have been considered above average, like morally. 
So Jesus isn't speaking to, he's not like, call, like passively calling people out. The reason Jesus says this here is that they were addicted, like us, to judging other people. I heard an interesting definition of addiction recently. Addiction is anything that you get life from. Anything that you get life from. And I think that's right. And I think Jesus wants us to be free from getting our life from setting ourselves up as the moral police for other people. Acting as though we know the state of another person's heart. And that's one thing, as, as if we know the state of their heart. The next thing that we do is we then are therefore superior to them. Because they think this way, and I don't think that way, and I think they're wrong. Not only are they wrong, but I'm, I'm a little better than they are. And so what does Jesus suggest that we do to get free from this addiction? Get free from this getting our life from judging other people. He says, think the opposite way about people. One that revolts against the standards of their day and of our day. Consider our own sins, he says, to be plank-sized sins, and other people's sins to be speck-sized. If you start with yourself and you live with your default as always regarding your sin as plank-sized, it will help you and I pump the brakes a bit on the judgments of other people. Interestingly enough, Paul applied, I think, this exact teaching to his life in this way. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Was Paul the worst sinner really quickly before we keep going? Probably not, right? He probably wasn't the actual worst sinner on the planet at that moment. But he lived with a posture that believed this about himself and therefore positioned Christ as the one who had the authority to eliminate that from his life. Go ahead, the next slide. He says, But for that very reason that I was the worst of sinners, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, there he goes again, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. It doesn't matter how minor others may consider your specific sins. It doesn't matter how major another person's sin might be compared to your own. We are to consider ourselves the worst of sinners. We are to consider ourselves the worst of sinners. And because of that very reason, understanding that it was that reason that Christ showed us mercy, displaying his immense patience for us, who believe and have received eternal life. And what I love, what I love about this teaching in Matthew 7, I, I, I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but I, I think that really what, is, what Jesus is doing is he's, he's actually giving us a spiritual practice. Like he's, he's giving you something you can actually do when you start defaulting to this mentality of judging other people, condemning them, placing judgment on them, being the judge and the jury for them. The spiritual practice is simply to remind yourself that whatever sin or imperfection or fault you see in them, 
consider it a mere speck of dust compared to the tree trunk of sin and imperfection and brokenness in your own life. That's the spiritual practice. To just switch that mentality and go, oh, you know, I see the, what, I, what I see in their life looks to me like a tree trunk, but it's probably just a speck. Because I have a tree trunk in my own eye, I really can't see, right? Think about the wrong, I want you to, I want you to think about the wrong kind of judgment this way. To judge poorly. When we judge poorly, what we are doing is we are ascribing worth to ourselves at the expense of another. We're ascribing worth to ourselves, setting ourselves up on a pedestal and placing ourselves as superior to other people. This is what I think we're doing when we judge other people poorly. Again, nothing wrong with making judgment calls at times in life. This is what has to happen. What this is, what we do when we do it poorly, is that we're minimizing our own faults and sins, and we're maximizing the faults and the sins of others. Again, this has been a very convicting phrase to study and to engage with, in preparation for today, if, for my own life, and I suspect, again, for many of us. But if, you are, if you've ever said to yourself, probably in your head, not out loud, most of us have enough of a filter, we wouldn't say it out loud, at least to people we don't know well. We might say it people, to people we're really close to. If you've ever said, at least I'm not as bad as that person or that group, or I can't, you know, you're sort of just so, saying something to dismiss an entire human being or an entire people group then you are likely, in that moment, minimizing your own sin and fault and maximizing that of other people. And I think the story that maybe illustrates this better than any other story in the Bible is in John chapter 8. The woman that is caught in the act of committing adultery. You may recall this story. Adultery in that day, of course, was punishable, according to the law, by death. And the way that someone who was caught in the act of adultery would be put to death is by stoning them. And so in this story in John chapter 8, this group of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees catch this woman in a relationship with someone that isn't her husband and they drag this woman before Jesus. And they want to use her as an object lesson. See Jesus? The law says that she should be stoned. What do you say? You hear the judgment in their voices and their questions. They know that Jesus, they have Jesus trapped now. And what is Jesus going to do? Well, if you know the story, you know that Jesus calls them to individual self-reflection. He calls them to evaluate the plank in their eye. And this is what it says in the, in the end of this story. Jesus said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. See, the mob came wanting the death penalty, but they left as individuals contemplating their own lives and their own sin. And listen, the thing about this story is they knew they were right. They had a Bible verse in the Old Testament to prove that this is what you do to people who have committed adultery. You stone them. Jesus flipped the script on them and said, the Bible says that, but this is what we're going to do moving forward. 
And what they had not considered in that moment in interaction with Jesus was that Jesus could have assembled a second crowd that knew they were right about something to stone the first crowd. But Jesus didn't do this, obviously, because throwing stones at stone throwers isn't the Jesus way. It's not the way of love. Jesus wasn't just trying to save the woman caught in the act of adultery, which is a lot of times what we think about this story. But Jesus' primary focus was to save her, and that was a focus, to be sure. But he wasn't just trying to save her from being stoned. He was also trying to save the individuals with the stones in their hands, inviting them to see mercy as the new way forward. James, the brother of Jesus, I can't help but think that maybe he was there on that day and he's recalling some of the experiences that he has with his brother when he's writing his epistle. And he says this in James 2 verse 13. He says, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What would happen if we chose people over issues? What would happen if we chose people over being right? What would happen if we chose people over winning an argument? What would happen if we chose people over everything and anything else? And I may be wrong about this. I am willing to admit and acknowledge that. But this is my position on most issues. If you want to know what I think about most issues, it's what I just said. People over everything else. Because I want to choose mercy over judgment. And if that makes me wrong, as some of you heard me say before, in smaller settings where I've shared this in some smaller settings, when I stand before the Lord one day, if Jesus says to me, Doug, you were too merciful to people. If I'm able to talk at all, because I'm standing in the presence of Christ, I will respond with these words if I can recall them in that moment. Lord, I was simply trying to be like you. And maybe that won't be enough, but I think it will. And I imagine in that moment Jesus grabbing me and giving me a big hug and saying, well done. Because this is who Jesus was. It's who Jesus still is. It's one of the primary reasons for me personally that I can't get enough of Jesus Christ because everywhere you look, he is choosing people over and over and over and over again, always choosing people over the thing in their life that is the, the, sort of the, you know, like the thing that kind of brings them to him, presenting, this presenting thing in their life. And again, I, I can hear some of, the, some of the pushback. This does not mean Jesus was soft on sin. You can be anti-sin and pro-people. You hear me? We can be anti-sin and pro-people. Always. Mercy over judgment means you live with a posture of mercy. That you're aware of your plank at all times. There's a, there's a true story in a book that I read once about a lawyer and a felon. The author was telling a story about his dad, and his dad was the lawyer. And he says that his, his lawyer dad died in 20, uh, 2009 after a lifetime of community service in his field. He was a lawyer and later became a judge. And the end of his 
career, he was a judge in Missouri. He was, the author says he was a conservative, but during his career, he was known in his community for his compassion and kindness and mercy. And so his dad dies in 2009, and he says at his funeral, a man approached him and said, your father sent me to prison for armed robbery. I came to his funeral today to honor him. He always treated me with respect and dignity, and he dealt with me as mercifully as the law would allow. And in this book, he writes, I don't know how often a felon attends the funeral of a judge who sent him to prison in order to pay his respects, but I would guess it's not too often. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What if when we could blame, we choose mercy? When you could shame, you choose mercy. When you could criticize, mercy. When you could condemn, have mercy. When you have a political disagreement, have mercy. When you have a theological disagreement about Scripture and about God and about faith, you choose mercy. When you are certain that you are completely right and that they are completely wrong, you have mercy. When you could exact your revenge and get even, have mercy. We do this so that when we pray, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, there will be a large reservoir of mercy for God to draw from because mercy triumphs over judgment always. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning mindful of the plank in our own eye and grateful, as Paul said, for your grace and your patience with us, that you have pursued us, that you came to this earth to live among us, to be one of us, to give your life for humanity. And we are recipients of that mercy and that grace, God, and we pray that we will be people who reserve judgment to you alone and who live as, a walk, as walking extenders of mercy in the world around us, giving it away as freely as we have received it. And we're thankful, Father, for these stories in Scripture that remind us that you have chosen people, that you've chosen people in all of our messiness and struggle and brokenness and imperfection. You chose us. You chose humanity and that you still choose humanity. And this morning, God, I know that there are many of us in this room that are wrestling internally, externally, in our hearts and our minds with a variety of things, and I pray that each of us will hear a word of mercy spoken over our lives, that you love us and that you care about us and that you're aware of our situation, and that we will be willing to receive this mercy that comes so freely from the heart of Jesus and that we, in turn, will give it away at every chance we get. We pray that you'll give us courage this week to both be recipients and givers of that mercy. In Jesus' name, and the church said, amen. Would you stand with me this morning? If you have any prayer needs, we want to certainly invite you to make those known to us. You can still text those in to us. Uh, and we will pray over those things. We're going to sing a couple more songs and then be led in our shepherd's prayer.